One of the things that we did to them, we always love to put our students in, in uncomfortable positions and tension. Jesus always wrestled uh, his disciples in this place of tension to help them grow, to help them learn. Because how many of you would agree with me on this, that it's in our places of tension where we're uncomfortable. When we get on the other side of that, we could say, hey, there was growth. Like it, We learn in the tension, right? Uh, I don't know how you learn how to swim. My dad pushed me in the pool. That was tension, right? Guess who learned how to swim? Very quickly, I understood what dog paddle was. So it's in the tension. One of the things we did with our students is we put them in this place of tension. We took them. I've got a photo here for you to see. But this is called the road to nowhere. This is a tunnel. Now, it looks all nice and fun and, and like, oh, beautiful. Let's go sightsee and take pictures, uh, post on Instagram. But we didn't go during the day. We took them about 9 o'clock at night because that's the best time to go to tunnels that you don't know anything about. It's really interesting because for the first time in my life on the way to this tunnel, uh, a baby cub ran out in front of our car less than half a mile from the tunnel. So pretty sure Winnie the Pooh was going to be at the other end of this when we got there. But when we get there, they don't see anything. It's completely dark. We do, by the way, walk through, check it, security checks. They're safe. Don't worry. It's, it's good. But it's muddy. It's nasty. And, and we put them in a place of complete darkness and no flashlights. Now, how many of you already are like, I'm out, don't want to do that. Uh, I will continue to help send kids to camp. I do not want to go to camp. And so we put them in this place of darkness and we have them walk to the other side without any lights. And here's the problem. You get to the other side and this is called the road to nowhere. You have to turn around and come all the way back. What our students didn't realize, I'll show you this photo here. You got another photo? Did I put another photo in there? I did. It's right there. Um, what they don't see in this place of darkness, they're rats. There's mud. There are random sticks that have been thrown in there, broken bottles. Seances have been done in here. Satanic rituals have been done in here. Um, and there are all kinds of things on painted on the screen. We can go ahead and move that just in case there's any inappropriate things. There were lots of inappropriate things written on the wall and drawn on the wall. Some people were fascinated with certain uh, words and things. But um, what we wanted them to understand is that we walk in this place of darkness. And all around us in this darkness, we don't, we don't realize it, but there's, there's a war going on around us. It's a spiritual war. And so often, we try to run from it. There's a group of girls that told me in the tunnel, like, if, if we just have the light, we'll be fine. Because we, we want to run out to the other side. If I could just see just a little bit of light, I could run to that light and get out. And, and what we don't understand in life is we try to flee darkness, as we, we should. But you and I were called to be the light of the world. We don't flee darkness. Darkness flees our light. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, what he's talking about real quickly is just to, for you to understand. You remember when Jesus comes in to Jerusalem? It's the last week of his life. We call it the triumphal entry. And he comes down to go into the city. That road was the main road that would come into the temple, the place of worship, the place to come face to face with God. And there would be a big menorah that would light up that path. So when Jesus is teaching this on the southern steps of the temple, he would be pointing at that menorah 
saying, you, just like the menorah, are a city on a hill. You're guiding these people down the path to the Father. Okay, you got the context? And he said, nobody puts a, uh, puts, uh, lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather we put it on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. Not see your good works and talk about how great you did, but see your good works and know the only way that's happening because there's a good Father that has blessed you and has given you these gifts to do for his glory. Jesus is not commanding us to be light. He describes us as light. Because the light of the world lives within us. He's, he's in us. So, light transforms darkness. Can we start there and agree with that? Um, that's how we influence the world for Jesus. We, we simply are just shining our lights. We were never called to shout at the darkness. That doesn't work. We are called to shine our light in the darkness. Paul calls us to this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless and a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. The question this morning, are you shining your light or are you hiding your light? Are you shining or hiding? That's a, that's a really big question that we want to rest, wrestle with this morning as we approach Philippians chapter 2 with Paul. Because Paul's pointing out, they're in a road to nowhere. The world around us, they think it's a road to nowhere, but it does go somewhere. It's just not the place that they think they're going to end up. But it's eternal separation from God. And Paul's going to teach us not just how to shine the light, but why we shine the light. You can know how to do a lot of things, but when you forget your why, you lose your purpose. And Paul wants to show them the purpose of, here, here's why we shine our light. So in this passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, he's going to give us four whys of why we shine our lights for Christ. And we'll start here. We shine our lights for Christ for the unity of the church. This is a unified body. Now, we may approach certain theological things a little differently. We may lean one way or another, but there, there's a foundation that we say these are the beliefs that we stand solid on and 100% agree. For instance, we agree that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and the Messiah. We agree on that, right? We agree that that same Jesus went to the cross and died for our sin and was resurrected on the third day so that we can have relationship with God. We believe that, right? Those are foundational beliefs that we have unity on. But we may differ on the gift of tongues. We may differ on the order of salvation. We may differ on sanctification. We may have some differences on some things. But it's not going to rip our unity apart. Because we have liberty in the truths of these are the, the foundational pieces. And so he, he's saying in, in this Philippians 2 is there, there has to be a unity of the church. He begins chapter 2 with a plea for spiritual unity. We have to have it. He says that you can shine your light if, if, you're, if you're located in the corner, it's hard to shine. But if you can get out in the middle of the room, you can do a lot more is what, he, is what he's going to show us. 
So Paul says this, verse 1. If then, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation in love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection, and by the way, this, this word if right here reads this way in the Greek, that since these things are true, so you could even say that, hey, because there is encouragement in Christ and because there is a consolation of love and because there is a fellowship with the Spirit. Remember, fellowship means that there's this, this deep abiding relationship, not just hobbies and buddies. It's a deep friendship with the Spirit. He says that there's any affection and mercy. He, he says this, make my joy complete. He wants them to know that his joy will be overflowing if he just hears that this church that was started 10 years ago is unified together on the gospel. Now, where's Paul? Remind me again where Paul is. He's in prison, arrested because he preached the gospel. He is in Rome. There are a lot of things that I would be worried about if I were arrested in prison, knowing that I was given the death sentence and I was going to be dying at any point in time. But yet he says, my joy, I'm joyful right now, but man, it will be made complete to find out that there's unity in the body. That's what we've been called to do. And he says this in verse two, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love united in the same spirit intent on one purpose. He, he's saying it's a spiritual unity, not worldly conformity. We're not conforming to what the world around us looks like. We, we are unifying around the gospel message. This is, he's saying, this is our bond. He says, our bond in Christ is stronger than anything in any ethnic, cultural, or political differences that we may have. Our bond in Christ is what keeps us together. You know the phrase, blood is thicker than water? Paul would say that blood may be thicker than water, but blood's not thicker than baptism water because we all stick together in the blood of Jesus. And so he's, he's saying this unity is a really, really big deal. Now, if you want to have unity, the key to unity, and here's a bonus point for you, the key to unity is always humility. Because in order for us to be unified, we're going to have to be humble because we're going to often have to admit, maybe I'm not right. Maybe I could be off. Maybe they are right. That's, that's a, that takes a lot, doesn't it? It takes a lot to admit that we're wrong. It takes a lot to confess a sin. But the first part of coming to Jesus is confession. It's humility. Receiving salvation, the very basic start of salvation, is humility. Admitting, I ain't got this. You know what I mean? There, there was a group that was rafting with us this week. They were the safety raft. They were to go down first and help everybody else that, that would fall out. And they ain't got this because their whole raft just, nobody was left in the boat, everybody. That's what I'm trying to say. It was all downhill. Uh, we got some great pictures on our Facebook page of, in sequence of those people. Hey, oh, and then everybody in the water, they got baptized and everybody's safe and just a little bit of blood. But he says this, and I want you to read this with me. Do, what's that next word? All right, in the Greek language, that still means nothing. Okay, do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. That means to be puffed up 
on nothing, thinking that you're more than what you really are when you're really nothing, but you think, I've got this together, look at me, that's being conceited. Like trying to build yourself, and oftentimes it comes at the price of damaging other people that are trying to help you to be conceited. And he says, do nothing out of those things. Don't do anything for your own selfish ambition. Don't do anything that's conceited. He says, but in humility, this is hard, okay? In humility, consider other people as more important than yourselves. Is that the world we live in? No. I don't know the last time you tried to move over in a lane on the interstate and your blinker's been going for like five miles and nobody's Christian on the interstate, apparently, because nobody will let you in. This is, we have a hard time being considerate of other people. How many of you put your shopping carts back? How many of you leave it at your car? Is that being considerate? Or throwing stuff on the ground and like just leaving trash and just being like somebody gets paid to do that? Is that thinking of other people? So, so Paul here says we got to be thinking about other people because the gospel. When you get the gospel, you got to be thinking about other people because there's other people who need the gospel. Now, what he doesn't mean is that everybody else is more valuable to God than you are. That's not at all what he's saying. What he is saying is the church should live in such a way that everybody here is treated equal. Not based on what you do or how much you give or what family dynamic you come from. Everybody's an equal at the cross. Okay? And you'd probably say, well, how do we do that? Well, here's a question for you. I want you to answer this in your mind. Don't answer this out loud. Okay, let me say that one more time. Answer this question in your mind. Don't answer it out loud or we might have issues. Who is the biggest sinner that you know? I hope the answer for you was you. Because here's the thing, we often judge people by their sin off secondhand information. When the truth of the matter is, when I look at myself, I've got firsthand accounts about my sin. I know things about me that you have no clue, the, the struggles that I have, the things that I have done, the things that I have thought. You have no clue. I'm the worst of the worst. This is why Paul says, I am the chief of all sinners. Because the closer you get to Jesus, the more you recognize that. And so in here, when he's saying that you got to start thinking about other people, you can live in a way that everybody is treated with unity. We create unity by having humility, by serving and looking out for the needs and the interest of everybody here. We have no reason to be prideful and to think that we're better than anybody else. Because at the end of the day, every single one of us will go into the kingdom with grace and nothing else and nothing more. That's good news. So he says this in verse 4, everyone. Okay, again, in the Greek language, that means everyone. Okay, no play on words here. Everybody should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of other people. There's nothing wrong with your interests. We all have our interests. The problem, though, is sometimes our interests can cause us to be short-sighted of what the mission is. So we have to be very careful to not just look out for our own, but look out for other people. Look out for other things, other interests of other people. 
Be concerned about other people. The Bible says in Hebrews, the author says this, is that let us consider one another, how we stir one another up to love and to good deeds. There is a level of love and there's a level of good works that will never be achieved unless I'm around godly people and looking out for the interest of other people as they are looking out for the interests of me. So let us consider one another. So why do we shine? We're for the unity of the church. But we also shine for the example of Jesus. Now this one's hard. This one's really difficult of what Paul's about to tell us to do. Because he says this. He starts with this word adopt. Now to adopt. To adopt something means that that becomes you. Takes on, legally becomes you. Right? He says you adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Verse 5, by the way, is how to do verses 3 and 4 that we just read. Do nothing. He said, if you want to do nothing out of ambition, uh, selfish ambition and, and being conceited, then you adopt the same attitude, that of Christ Jesus. Who existing in the form of God. Did y'all catch that part? Existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something that he could be explored. Like he says this, is it before, before he was born in Bethlehem, he was God. He didn't just become God when he was born. He, he was God before Bethlehem. John 1.1 1, 1 says in the beginning, he was God and he was with God. He is more than just a miracle worker. Paul saying he was God in flesh, Emmanuel. He did not cling on to his privileges of his deity. Instead, the Bible says instead he he emptied himself. In other words, he took on human nature without losing his divine nature by assuming the form of a servant, a doulos. That means willingly serving, not held in a bondage. Does this by free will. He says, so he assumes the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he became one of us in flesh and bone. He humbled himself. And by the way, if you go back into history, even the Jewish people say Jesus existed. He was in flesh and bone. The problem they have is he was not God because Jesus died. And they're right. He did die. But every single day since that moment, they drive by an empty tomb and cannot seem to grasp that that man rose himself from the dead. And he says, that he took on the likeness of humanity. And when he came, he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Because he could have said, hey, uh, God, I get it. My body is just too pure for these people. My blood is too holy for these people. Like, I, I, can't, I can't do this. I, I don't really want to, you know, I don't, I don't think they deserve this. So that's not, that's not Jesus' attitude. The attitude here is he humbled himself to the point of death. Why? Because of us. For us. Hey, when Jesus was on the cross, it counted for us. It meant something. Because he was bridging the gap. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. And what does that mean? At the cross... God treated Jesus as if he had committed all of my sin and treated me if I had done all the righteous things. They call that the great exchange. 
that we got what we didn't deserve, grace, and Jesus took on the full weight of our penalty of sin. Wouldn't you say that's a loving father? That's what we call the gospel, because that's good news. It's, it can be bad news, because the bad news is there's nothing we can do to come to God, right? The good news is Jesus died so that didn't have to happen, so that we could have a relationship with him. So we shine to be examples of Christ. We also shine for the exaltation of Christ, for him to be worshipped, for him to be praised. Thank God the story of Jesus did not end at Calvary. There's more of the story. Because had it ended at Calvary, of them just pulling his body off of the cross, it just meant another man. The Jewish people would have been right that he was just another guy. But the story did not end at Calvary. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 9, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every single name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That means every single knee will bow, whether you believe or don't believe. But at the end of time, everybody will come under that authority and admit Jesus is Lord. For some, it'll happen on the right time. And for others, at the end of time, it will be in the wrong time. And he says, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When you watch the news and you ask, what in the world is this world coming to? The world is coming to Philippians chapter 2 when every single knee will bow and every single tongue confess. Every one. This verse is saying that everybody that recognizes Jesus is Lord will be a follower. I want you to understand this passage is about submission and not salvation. It's about submission and not salvation. It does not claim that everybody is going to be saved. Some people will bow and recognize Jesus as Lord in this moment. And then there will be others that it will be too late when they bow. But they will still have to bow and acknowledge that they were wrong. In other words, humility is going to come one way or another. And Pharaoh thought, I'm good, I'm just going to do whatever I wanted. But God brought Pharaoh into humility. Wouldn't you agree with that? He used him. So for the exaltation of Jesus, like we, this happened because God can be lifted up, worshipped, every knee, every tongue. He's saying... You're not going to only just see the physical posture of people doing this. You will physically and audibly hear this being proclaimed as well. We shine like stars also for the completion of our salvation. We call that progressive sanctification. There's a, many of you may have heard or know of Joni Erickson Tata. She was in a tragic um, diving accident as a teenager and was paralyzed, left to a wheelchair, confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. And she spent her days just writing. She has wonderful writings, books, um, speaker, very encouraging. I, I remember as a, a middle school kid, um, I went and, and heard her speak and heard her story. And it was, even as a middle schooler, uh, it, it was encouraging to me. But she talks about during one of her hospital stays, she met this man who had suffered from an accident. And this accident left him limping. 
And she was talking to this man, and he said, I'm going to have a surgery that's going to fix this problem, and I won't limp anymore. So time goes by, and she goes to the, the doctor's office again, and, and she sees this guy after the surgery, and he's still limping. And when she sees her doctor, she said, it's a shame that his surgery didn't take. And the doctor said, what? She said, well, he's still limping. And the doctor said, that, well, that's not true. The, the surgery was a success. He's just now limping out of habit. Old habits die hard. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 12. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's some habits that are going to have to die in order for that to take place. Salvation is a gift that you receive, not a reward that you earn. Just can't do anything. That's the, that's the mercy and grace of God that we can't do anything. This, this text is not saying you work in for your salvation. It says you're to work out your salvation. This means that there's some hard work that has to be done. This means that there's some personal responsibility. This means the phrase, well, the church just isn't feeding me. That doesn't fly anymore. Because, everybody, we have an all-you-can-eat buffet right here, Monday to Saturday. And, of course, if you just come in here, you're going to starve the rest of the week if you're not in this. And Paul says we work out our own salvation. The working out means I'm, I'm in this book. I am reading this book. I, I'm spurring one another on. I'm having conversations about this book with other people. It, it's a personal responsibility. Work out means that salvation is more than just a ticket to heaven. It means that to be conformed to the image of his son. The only way we can be conformed to his image is by reading the things that he wrote to us and obeying the things that he has commanded us. And if we're not being, and we're being conformed one way or another, so if we're being conformed by his word, then we get conformed to the image of Jesus. But if we're not doing those things, we are being conformed to the image of everything that's around us. Jesus had a very strong language for the Pharisees of his day. Remember, he would often call them, you stiff-necked people. It's not because they had neck pains, everybody. But when he would say, you are a stiff-necked, what he was saying was, you look just like the idol statues that are all around you. I can't tell the difference between you and a believer. Can't tell the difference between you and the secular world that is out here. Because you're stiff-necked. You look like the very thing that you worship. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of people that make the, the claim that I'm a believer and I follow Jesus and they'll use all the spiritual language, but yet they're not tied to a local body. They're not in a group. They're not under the authority of anybody. You've got to be careful because that breaks the unity. You've got to put yourself around the right people that will help you work out your salvation, that love Jesus. We got to stop looking for churches that preach the gospel and start looking for churches that actually live the gospel. How about we do that? Because a lot of you found yourselves in churches that preach a gospel. It's not the gospel that preaches the gospel. It is not being lived out. This book demands action. The gospel demands a response from our lives. Right? We are to be conformed. The purpose of the Christian life, this, you can say it this way, 
It is the will of God to have the Spirit of God, to use the Word of God, to make the children of God look like the Son of God. That's the purpose. That's what we do. And the text says that we're to strive for that. While we're working out our salvation, look what he says in verse 13. For it is God who is working in you. We have a helper. Good news. We have a helper. He says that, for it is God who is working in you both to your will and to work according to his good purpose. Remember, we had already read in Philippians about how everything God works all things for your good according to his purposes, right? And now here he is saying that for it is God who's working in you both. He's looking after your will. He, he is concerned about what's happening. But also he's, he's working in you because there's a work that he has for you. And if he's working in you, then you can do the work that he has called according to his purpose. That's good. You might not think so. I think that's great news. Because there's a God that's working in us right now. You're not doing it by yourself. If we had to work out our own salvation, I can tell you what my life would look like. A mess, right? But when I, let, when I know that Jesus is involved, he exposes everything. He didn't come to give you better life. He came to give you life to the fullest. So Paul's like, listen, we shine lights for the completion of salvation. Like, when God is doing a work in us, we can't help for it to not come out of us. Whatever you jam down in the well, every time you pull that bucket, what's going to be in the bucket? Whatever it is you jam down in the well. And if your well is overflowing because you're digging in this word and you're listening to the Spirit and you're just processing what he's doing and being obedient to it, every time that well comes up, it's just splashing all over the place. I heard a guy describe it this way. He said that I'm drinking from the saucer because my cup of goodness has overflowed. That's where God is for him. So we shine our light for the completion of salvation, but also we shine it for the mission of the gospel. So how do we, how do we spread the gospel? Now, we probably have those answers in our head, right? This is how we spread the gospel message. But I want you to look at what Paul said. This might be the toughest verse. Because I had the hardest time with this verse. This is the one that I had to keep going back to. And, and I tried to negotiate with God to see if he could make some, um, some changes with this one. And maybe you'll feel that way too. But if we're going to spread the gospel and advance the gospel, Paul says this in verse 14. Do everything without grumbling. He didn't want to change that word. I tried. And arguing, we could also fill in that word with complaining. Anybody? He says if you want to spread the gospel, you got to do everything without grumbling and arguing. Because grumbling reflects that there's a bad attitude towards God. I'm not happy about the situation I'm in. You can do better. That's really what it is. And arguing just reflects a bad attitude towards everybody else. Now, we've been called to love God, love people. But when I'm when I'm grumbling and I'm not content, that's just saying I'm not content with what God's doing in my life. And when I'm complaining, I'm just telling them I'm not happy what you're doing in my life or happy that you're in my life. Y'all see how that works? If we're living in those two places, it's really hard for people to go, oh man, I'd really like to have the Jesus that you have. The complaining Jesus, the grumbling, never content with anything Jesus. And he says you do, you do everything without grumbling and arguing. 
so that you may be blameless and pure children of God because you reflect the Father who is blameless and pure and who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation. I mean, Paul nailed it, didn't he? It's like he was writing that to, to us right here. You could call this book together, church. And he says, Among whom you shine like stars in the world. How do you shine like stars? By holding firm to the word of life right here. And then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. Run in vain is the picture of an athlete and labor is the picture of a worker. And there's going to come a day where we'll just be bones in the box and we'll have to answer to the Lord for the life that we lived. It's coming, that day is coming. And he says in verse 17, but even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says true Christian joy is different from the world. He says the greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. And that counterculture to what we, what we learn in society? Like we learn about it's me, my stuff. It's all about me. It's not about anybody else. It's about what I want. But when we live a life of surrender where we let go of everything and we just sacrifice, the Lord always meets us in the sacrifice. Until you count the stories of God meeting me or meeting other people even in this room of places that he met you in your sacrifice. That's where joy is found. And you may ask, well, how is that even possible? Because God never let your sacrifice go unawarded it's always an award because that's where true joy comes from of not being tethered to things not being tethered to the creation but being tethered to the creator September the 8th 1860 there was a ship that called the Lady Elgin that took 300 passengers sightseeing on Lake Michigan out of all places, Lake Michigan. During the darkness of night, as everybody was calm and relaxed and enjoying their trip across Lake Michigan, Lady Elgin collided with another ship. They hit. And the captain, the captain didn't think that the Lady Elgin was damaged enough to panic that they were going to be fine. The other ship made it just in time back to its port before it sank. But 30 minutes after the collision, the hull of the boat broke open and all the people fell into the water. And many people died that night. There were a few that were, that were rescued. There was one particular Bible college student named Edward Spencer who heard about the accident that the boat had broken in half and 
people were dying and drowning and trying to cling to any piece of wood of the boat that they possibly could to stand a chance at life. So Edward Spencer runs to the shores of Lake Michigan and he swam out and he rescued someone. Then he repeated this 17 times. 17 times. Grabs, brings him to shore, swims, grabs, bring him to shore. On his last swim out, he was exhausted. And he grabs two people and brings the two back to make 17. After the 17th person, Edward collapses. He's out of it, unconscious. Body is physically drained. We could, we could say he emptied himself. He wakes up days later in a hospital, and his brother Will is standing over him. And as Edward's eyes open, and he starts to kind of put together that in an unusual place, he locks eyes with his brother. And he looks and he says, hey, Will, Will, did I do my duty? Did I give my best? Church, there are a lot of lost people around us. May we do our duty and be a light that shines in the dark places. That we do our duty and be a light that shines the grace of God to a people. Even when we feel like they don't deserve it. Can we just be honest? Sometimes we feel like they don't deserve it. But the cross of Jesus says, no, they do. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I challenge you in two ways this morning. The old hymn says that only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. We get one life. And we've been called to live it well. We've been called to live it in the abundance of grace that Jesus has to offer us. So you're in one or two places more. If you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus, my question goes back to you. Are, are you shining your light for Jesus in these places? Are you being intentional? Are you living on mission? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've never surrendered your life to his lordship. God wants to start your light in your life. He wants to do something in you. He wants to give you true life. If you could bow your heads with me for just a moment. I don't ever want to let a moment go by that the Holy Spirit may be working in someone's life. And I know he's working. But for you, you may be here this morning and say, listen, um, I've, I've never given my life to Christ. I've never surrendered. Maybe there was a moment that you would say, I, I did, I thought I did, but it didn't mean anything. I, I just, I was just there. And so maybe today you're here and you're like, I, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to surrender. And if that's you, I just want you to pray this prayer with me. God, I surrender my life. I want to live my life, this one life that I have, I want it to count for something. 
God, I surrender my life to you. Save me. And if you've prayed that prayer this morning, that simple prayer, in that moment, Jesus came and rescued you, saved you. you you've been adopted as a son or a daughter of the Father. We want to talk to you about that. We want to pray for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, I just want to challenge you. We have been called to live like the stars that shine bright to a dark world. Don't shout at it. Just shine. So, Father, I pray this morning for our, our body that we'll be a unified church. Your attack is on this church. It's here, and you want to attack individuals. Lord, I pray right now that we plead the blood of Jesus in the word of our testimony of your grace and your goodness in our life. The devil can't touch this place or touch these people. I pray for those who have given their life this morning, God, that to take their first step of boldness to come and talk to one of us. Talk to us at the welcome desk. Come down to me, pray over. God, just help them take their next step. So in this moment, as we sing and worship, I just pray for that the shackles that are holding us will go. And even in this moment, we'll shine bright and reflect your son, Jesus. I pray these things in the name above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and let's respond this morning.